So we're in uh, the book of Genesis. We've been looking at Abraham for the past four weeks. Uh, finally, we're moving on to his grandson, Jacob. And so, uh, you know, we're finishing the book of Genesis here, but there's far more to the book of Genesis than what we've read. And so I encourage you yourself to spend time in it, to read it, to meditate on it. It's a wonderful book. Um, but at this time, as we dive into God's word, would you stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word, the receiving of God's word? We stand because it is our act of worship to him. It's Genesis 28, beginning with verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there at that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There's none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer once more? Father in heaven, we're thankful for this word, your word, and we pray that it would be received by us, uh, not merely as a story, uh, not merely as an anecdote, um, but as your revelation. Uh, and because it's revelation, Lord, you're not just telling us something that happened historically. You're telling us something about yourself and your heart. And because we, Lord, long and desire to hear from you, we pray that your spirit would be present so that we would receive this word to be life-giving truth, to be of deep encouragement for our souls, and that it would lead us to give you worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We open up our passage today, and the first person we meet is Jacob. Now, we've been looking at Abraham for the past four weeks, and so uh, Jacob is somebody we haven't yet met. We don't know much about him. And here's what you need to know. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. He is Isaac's son, and he is the younger twin brother to a man named Esau. Now, here's the thing about this twin brother relationship. Although he and Esau were only uh, seconds apart, only moments apart, the birth order really mattered to this family, and especially in this ancient culture. 
You know, I have two twin cousins, uh, Peter and Paul. And uh, Peter and Paul were born a few minutes apart. Peter was born a few minutes before Paul. Uh, But in that family, very interestingly, the birth order mattered uh, tremendously. And so even as kids, I remember when they were about five years old, they're grown adults now, but when they were about five years old, if you asked who was older, they very very clearly knew Paul was the older, or uh, yeah, Peter was the older one and Paul was the younger one. And as a result of having this sort of understanding Peter at that age knew at five years old to shoulder and carry the responsibilities of the older brother. And Paul knew that as the younger of the twins, he got to enjoy all the privileges of being the youngest child. Peter knew that if he said in front of his parents to Paul, go get me a drink, that Paul would have to go get him a drink. Otherwise, the parents would say something. You know, Peter knew he had to fulfill The role as the eldest son, Paul knew he could get away with a lot as the last son. So although only minutes apart, birth order mattered. Now I mentioned that because in Genesis 25, we learned that Esau and Jacob are twins, but they weren't just minutes apart. They were only moments apart, seconds apart. The way the story goes, we read in Genesis 25, it says this, when her, that's Rebecca, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. So Jacob literally came out on the heels of Esau. And yet because birth order was so important, not minutes, but merely moments, because birth order was so important, it was Esau who was to receive Isaac's blessing. Esau was the firstborn son. Now, this later became a huge source of resentment for Jacob, who in Genesis 27, a chapter before ours today, he ends up deceiving his blind father, Isaac, and stealing Esau's blessing. And when Esau finds out, you can imagine his reaction. First, he pleads with the father. Father, this has been a mistake. Can you please reverse it? But Isaac says it's too late. Nothing can be done. The blessings are now Jacob's. And so Esau's desperation plea turns into something else. You can imagine that feeling when something that's rightfully yours is stolen from right under your nose. But how would you feel about that? And it's not just uh, a, a friend who stole this or a family member. It's your twin brother. You spent nine months with him in the womb of your mother. How could this person betray me? And especially considering this wasn't the first time Jacob cheated Esau. It's actually his second time. And so you can imagine the rage boiling in Esau's heart. You know, some of you are parents, and if you have more than two children, you've most certainly heard them fighting, arguing, screaming. It might be common in your home to suddenly hear bickering, getting louder and louder until you hear the shriek, I'm going to kill you. And then the scurrying of footsteps, somebody running down the stairs to run to you for safety. (laughs) In fact, maybe in your home, you've heard it so much amongst your children, it doesn't even remind, it doesn't even alarm you anymore. You hear, I'm going to kill you. And you shout from the kitchen, don't leave a mess. (laughs) Siblings argue, siblings get angry. They say words they don't mean. But how many of you have ever had to not just separate them for a while, put them in timeout, put them in different rooms. How many of you ever had to take your youngest child and begin to pack their bags and say, you got to move. You're going to aunt and uncles in order to save your life. 
None of us have had that experience, and yet that's what Rebecca does for Jacob. Because Esau is so livid, he's so furious, he's declared his intent, I'm going to kill Jacob. And so she instructs Jacob, you need to leave. You need to go to Haran and to the place of your uncle Laban. And this is why when we get to verse 10, our story begins, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Now, it's important to know that because when we get to Jacob, what do you need to know about him? You need to know this guy is a liar and a cheater. He's a betrayer of his family. And so when you get to Jacob in chapter 28, he's not a sojourner passing through the land. He's not on vacation headed toward Haran. He's on the run. He's running for his life. He's running from his past mistakes. He's running from those he's hurt. He's running actually from the promised land. And in one sense, he's actually running from God. So already you read Jacob and you realize, oh, there's some, something sticky about him. I see myself in Jacob, whether it's his selfishness or his lying or his deceit or his running away. Jacob, we begin to see, is a lot more like us than we want to admit. Now, when God shows up, it's really interesting because we've already read this, but when God shows up, he does something unexpected because he doesn't curse Jacob like we would think he would, but he blesses Jacob. In fact, when he comes and he makes promises to Jacob, it's amazing because the promises he makes to Jacob, this liar, this deceiver, this betrayer, this on-the-run fugitive, is the same promises he made to good old faithful Abraham. If you remember, we read in verses 13 and 14 here, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. This is the promise made to Jacob. And it's very similar to the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 13, where we read God saying, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. The same promises. And the question is, why does Jacob get in on the same deal Abraham does? Because Jacob doesn't look anything like Abraham. Abraham was filled with faith and virtue. Jacob is filled with deception and greed. Abraham left Haran to go to the land of promise. Jacob is leaving the land of promise to go to Haran. And what's interesting, you know, when we get to somebody like Abraham, and Abraham has shown God's grace and he's given this promise, you know, it, it makes sense to us. Yeah, sure, Abraham messed up along the way. He wasn't perfect, but, you know, for the most part, he was a pretty good guy. Jacob, on the other hand, is really different. He doesn't deserve anything from God, we think, right? Because Jacob didn't mess up along the way. Jacob was a mess up. So when God makes the promises, the same promises to Jacob that he did to Abraham, what's happening is that we're being shown something about the depth of God's grace. We're not being told about the outstanding character of Jacob. You see, it makes sense when God's promise comes to Abraham. Um, look at his resume so far, right? He left his home and God called him to. He went to war for his nephew Lot. He interceded on behalf of a wicked city. Last week we saw he was even willing to give up his only son, Isaac, when God tested him. So it makes sense. Oh, God's grace comes to somebody like that. But it doesn't make sense when those same promises come to somebody like Jacob. Jacob, who stole twice from his brother, cheated his own twin brother out of this greedy heart. He deceived his blind father to take what wasn't his. Why does the promise come to him? Why does God make a gracious promise to him? Grace often only makes sense to us when it's given to those who look more like Abraham than those who look like Jacob. You know, but you will continue 
to misunderstand the depth of God's grace. You will always continue to misunderstand the depth of God's grace until you realize that you're actually a lot more like Jacob than you are Abraham. You know, how is it that a Christian can have a critical spirit and self-righteous judgment? How is it that a believer can be uncharitable and ungracious and unloving and unkind in words, thoughts, actions, and intentions? How is that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. It comes from a failure to grasp that the grace of God comes to scoundrels and schemers and sinners like Jacob, but like you and like me. Grace doesn't mark us when we don't believe we're bad. We're not marked with grace when we don't believe that we're like Jacob. Because we think that we somehow rightfully deserve it. So let's begin to look at this story and just really consider this theme of the mark of God's undeserved grace upon undeserving people. Look with me at verse 11. So the story begins, uh, Jacob's on the run, and we read, He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Uh, now, what's really cool that's going on here is the author is showing us the desperate and dire situation of Jacob by really highlighting two things. He is nowhere and he has nothing. So we're told that he shows up uh, to a certain place. The author doesn't even name it. It's an obscure place. It doesn't matter. He's nowhere. And then the second thing is that he has nothing to lay his head on. Have you ever been forced to sleep somewhere, maybe take a nap where you didn't plan and expect to sleep there, maybe like an airport? right? And so what do you do? You look for something to prop your head up. You know, hopefully you have someone around who has a nice, you know, tummy that you can lay your head on. If you don't, what do you do? You take a towel, you wrap a towel up, you take your jacket. Hopefully it's winter. You have a fluffy jacket, put your backpack behind your neck. You make use of what's around you. Jacob uses a rock, a stone, which means he doesn't have a tunic. He doesn't even have a cloak with him. He's nowhere with nothing. He's at the lowest point of his life. And it makes sense because he's a fugitive on the run. And you get to this kind of pathetic, pitiful scenario. And you're supposed to think, you know, you don't feel sorry for the guy. You end up thinking like, well, Jacob, like, what did you expect? This is, you reap what you sow. You lived your life this way. And so, of course, this is how you end up. But God's interpretation of the scene is different because when God shows up, right, we continue reading verse 12, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set out on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, one, this is the, you know, there's a lot of dreams in the Old Testament. This is the first time God appears to somebody in a dream. But what's really surprising is he appears to Jacob, like Jacob of all people. Why Jacob? Now, in this dream, Jacob sees a ladder reaching all the way up to heaven. And so you're supposed to imagine like a Jack of the Beanstalk where he drops the bean and it goes, you know, it goes all the way up into the heavens. That's what the ladder is like. It gets lost in the clouds. But what's interesting about this ladder is it's not one way, right? There's not a ladder and this sign is one way going up. In fact, it's two ways because we see the angels. Angels are uh, servants of the Lord. They're messengers of heaven. So the angels are going up and down, ascending, descending, back and forth. And when Jacob sees where the ladder touches on earth, in verse 17, he says, this is the gate of heaven. So here's this ladder, or translated staircase sometimes, and this ladder is providing unrestricted access to heaven. I mean, it seems like in this case, it's easier for Jacob to get to heaven than for Jacob to like go to another country. There's no customs agent. There's no global entry checkpoint. There's no TSA security line. Heaven is being opened up for a scoundrel, 
and a schemer and a sinner like Jacob. And it's surprising because when you read about someone like this, this is a bad guy. And you would think human justice, the way it works is you would think it would work the other way as if not a ladder would open up into the clouds, but that, you know, the ground would open up and there'd be a ladder descending into hell and, and demons with pitchforks are ascending and descending on it. Like you would think, oh, a bad person should end up in a bad place. Isn't it only good people that should end up in good places? But in this dream, everything is kind of turned upside down. And it's because the Bible is not concerned with giving you a morality tale that somehow, oh, the good are always rewarded and the bad are always punished. That's not what the Bible is saying. And if you think that, if you've turned the book into some kind of morality tale, then you're working with misinformation. That's not what the Bible is about. Because the Bible is not giving good advice, but it's giving good news. Jacob sees God in the heavens standing above the cloud. And God says this in verse 13. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And when God shows up and he introduces himself, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, he's actually not identifying something about himself. He's actually identifying something about Jacob. He's, being, he's telling Jacob, you are the heir of God's covenant promise. Now, Jacob is nowhere and he has nothing. And God shows up and he says, I will take you somewhere and I will give you everything. Not because you're good, not because you've lived a good life. In fact, despite all the bad you've done, I'm doing this not in response to what you've done for me. I'm doing this because I'm gracious. I've made a covenant promise to your grandfather, to your father, and even to you, I'll make this promise. Now, I bring that up because uh, everybody in this room who's overhearing God's conversation to Jacob, you need to hear what God's saying to you. Because God is saying something to you this morning. I think some of you need to hear God saying to you, I make promises with you, not because of the good you've done for me. So stop trying to earn or merit or impress me. It's okay to get off your treadmill of performance that you're slavishly running on to try to gain my favor and be my good grace. Maybe the Lord is saying, some of you actually need to take off your self-righteous crown because I don't bless and save depending on who you're better than or how much more you do than the other person. I'm a gracious God and I make my promises out of undeserved favor. Some of you need to hear that. And others of you maybe need to hear God saying, you know, I'm gracious, so I make promises despite all the sins and all the ways you've disobeyed me. Some of you are running away, and you're hiding in guilt and shame. Some of you are, are spiraling further into sin, thinking that you're a lost cause. God is saying, I'm not turned off by you. I'm not turned off by what you're doing. I'm not turned off by what you've done. I'm a God of grace and I make promises out of undeserved favor. You know, friends, look at Jacob. He's out there in the middle of nowhere with no one and nothing. And you got to think to yourself, man, like as an heir of God's promise given to Abraham and Isaac and then being, you know, Abraham's grandson, like, what did you do? You must have really royally messed up in order to end up in a situation like he did. But it's there in the muck that God shows up. Because it's while Jacob was sleeping that God is seeking. And he seeks after Jacob. 
what does he do? He turns this schemer into a dreamer. And he has this tremendous dream. In verse 12, there's a ladder with angels descending and ascending on it. Now, the ladder that God shows is not for Jacob to climb up to God. The ladder is actually for God to come down to Jacob. You see, you can't read this story and truly understand it apart from what Jesus has to say about the story because actually thousands of years later, Jesus shows up on the scene and he's walking the streets of Galilee and he comes across a man named Nathaniel and he's talking to him and he brings up this story. And you know what Jesus says in John 1, 51? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So Jesus takes the story of Genesis 28 and he presents it back to this man, except he changes one detail. He replaces the ladder with himself. Why? Because Jesus is saying, I am the ladder. I am the staircase by which God has come down to seek and to save scoundrels and schemers and sinners. In fact, Jesus says, Jacob's dream is ultimately fulfilled in me. Jesus is literally a dream come true. Because God knew that we could never reach him. He came down for us. Because like Jacob, we were running away from him. He came running after us. The ladder, by the way, was never meant for you to climb your way up to God. The ladder was always meant for God to condescend and come get you. And ultimately, that's going to make Christianity and the message of the gospel, the message of grace, undeserved favor, very different than all the messages of the world. All the, the various religions of the world, they all imagine uh, God or heaven or nirvana, or enlightenment, or the higher truth, whatever spiritual, supernatural destination there is, all of that is sort of at the top of the mountain, and all of us were at the foot of the mountain. And whether it's through uh, virtuous living, moral effort, uh, hard work, pursuit of virtue, attaining knowledge, mastery of techniques and meditation, whatever it is, these religions are saying somehow, uh, if you do what's right, or you do enough of what's right, you can scale the mountain, you can get to God, you can reach him. You can reach your spiritual destination. That in one sense is kind of the uh, skeletal structure of every religion. You know, I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, I've only gone rock climbing once in my life and I vowed to never do it again. Um, but that was actually not because um, of what happened in the gym. It was because that decision was arrived at everything that happened post-gym. Because after doing the rock climbing, I remember getting to my car and uh, taking out the keys and um, my forearms were so incredibly sore. I didn't have the strength to turn my car ignition on. So I sat in the parking lot for like 10 minutes. Um, and I remember the next day I woke up, my forearms were so sore. I couldn't squeeze the toothpaste out of the bottle. I couldn't lather the shampoo into my head in the shower. Now, some of you have experienced this kind of soreness before. And if you haven't, well, you can imagine it. But here's the thing. I remember uh, talking to a friend who loved rock climbing and I was complaining about it and uh, explaining, you know, how much I, I disliked it and I would never do it again. And he looked at me and he said, dude, it's because you were doing it wrong. I was like, what? He's like, you had the wrong technique. And then he went on to explain um, that in rock climbing, foot placement is far more important than handholds because your lower body is so much stronger than your upper body. So if you get a good foot placement, you're actually just pushing yourself up. But if you don't have the right technique, what are you trying to do? You're trying to pull your entire weight up. And then I went to REI.com and I fact-checked him. He was right. <laughs> Which is true. 
Because a lot of people think, oh, you're skinny, you should be good at rock climbing, or you're strong, you should be good at rock climbing. But any true experienced rock climber knows that's not true. Yeah, it's good to, you know, be slimmer, it's good to have strength, but you need to know the right technique. And if you know the right technique, you can master getting up to the top. Dear friends, that right there is the sum of all world religions. God, the truth, the divine, nirvana, whatever it is, is at the top of the mountain. And if you master the right techniques, if you learn enough and do enough, you can reach that spiritual destination. So then what happens? Every religion has a spiritual book, a spiritual writing, a holy book. And that book works as a type of manual on how to access God, how to get to heaven, how to attain salvation, how to climb the ladder. Except for Christianity. The message of Christianity and the gospel is entirely different because the gospel is not a message about how you can reach God, but it's the story of what God has done to reach you. Christianity is about God bringing the ladder down so that he can come and save you. I've said this before, the gospel doesn't give you a manual on how you can reach God. The gospel tells you about Emmanuel, God come to be with us. God come down for us. Christ is the ladder that came down from heaven to get you, to be with you. And that's why when he came to this earth, born like a man, he lived an obedient, acceptable life in our place. And then he also died an obedient, sacrificial death in our place so that we could be with God. You know, this grace that God extends is so important. I think some of you are living under the lie that perhaps you're too uh, broken. Uh, you've made too many mistakes in your life. You're too uh, dirty. You've messed up too much. And so you think, I've hurt too many people. I've lied too many times. I've gone too far in my sin. There's no turning back. God would never lower his ladder down to me. So what are you doing? You're running away. You're running to Haran running away from God. And then there are others of you in this room who are not like that at all. You're living under a different lie. You're living under the lie that you can actually climb the mountain. Because you think, oh, if I live good enough, if I stay away from certain sins, if I'm a good behaving, decent human being, then I don't need the ladder to come down. Why? Because I can make my way up to God. And so what are you doing? You are trying to climb your way to heaven, trying to reach God. Some of you are running away to Haran. Some of you are trying to reach heaven on your own. But Genesis 28 comes and it gives us this lesson. It's saying, you are never so bad that God can't reach down to you. But at the same time, you are never so good that you can reach up to God on your own. And it's because of that that God sent his son into the world for you. Then what happens? Jacob wakes up from his dream and it says in verse 17, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. What's really interesting, what's the gate of heaven? Where he is, this is the gate of heaven. The gate of heaven is not located up the ladder. Because if it was, then none of us could enter the gate of heaven. The gate of heaven has come down. And the gate of heaven is now wide open for scoundrels and schemers and sinners like Jacob and like you and like me. And once you begin to realize that this is what Christianity is saying, this is what the gospel is saying, that the ladder comes down for people like Jacob, that you can actually begin to have the humility to admit, man, then I too am a man like Jacob. Because God's grace is undeserved favor for the undeserving. So then what happens? If you've received this, if you've encountered, if you've experienced God in his grace, 
what transformation takes place? What mark is there in your life? You know, some of you may uh, be Harry Potter fans, and uh, I know that uh, on HBO, there was a 20th anniversary special that came out. And so uh, uh, in light of that, uh, I'm 20 years late, but I just started reading uh, The Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, I'm about 50 pages into it. And one of the you know, things that kind of struck out to me was uh, when um, Hagrid first comes in and he meets Harry, you know, he tells him about the mark. And, and what is that mark? The, the mark is evidence that, you know, Harry had encountered Voldemort. He had encountered him and it left a mark on him. Something changed about him. What's the reality? If you've encountered, you experience God in Christ and his grace come to you. What mark is there in you? What change and transformation is in your life? What happens to Jacob? Jacob is running away from God. He's running away from the land of promise. He's running away from all that he's done. God encounters him here at Bethel. And what does he do? Well, in verse 28, he takes his pillow and turns it into a pillar. He anoints it with oil. And then what does he do in verse 22? He says, And the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. I'll give a full tenth to you. Jacob encounters, experiences God in his grace. And there's a change. There's a transformation. What does he do? He vows to worship and to tithe. Now, don't worry. This is not a sermon on tithing. (laughs) But maybe it needs to be. Maybe it needs to be because when the grace of God came into Jacob's life, it changed something in him. He was transformed. He didn't just walk away full of gratitude saying, I'm really thankful for this, but he began to make commitments and vows. I think the challenge comes for all of us. And the challenge is simply this. How does the grace of God experienced in your life become the grace of God expressed through your life? If you've experienced God's grace in your life, how is it being expressed? What tangible evidence is there? Because, yeah, God may not have met you in a dream. But God has met you in Jesus Christ, and that's far better, far more powerful, far more transformative. If you've met Christ, what does that encounter with his grace change in you, and what does it change about you? That is the question for you to think about as you leave. It's a question for you to think about this afternoon before you meet into community groups. It's a question to think about this week before you meet uh, for some of you on Wednesday or Thursday. It's a question for you to begin to put hands and feet on, to challenge one another with, to get concrete. You know, the sermon and its application is not done when the service is over. It's not done when the preaching is over because you need to continually digest it and discuss it. And I hope you can begin to do that together. I can't begin to connect the dots to suggest to you, oh, if you've experienced the grace of God, it must look like this in your life. If you need suggestion, I would say it's to tithe. (laughs) But you begin to work it out, discuss it, digest it together. Because that is the lesson in Jacob's dream, that God's grace flows down from heaven in his son to scoundrels and to schemers and to sinners like Jacob, and like you, and like me. And when we receive it, our lives are transformed. That's the power of God's grace at work in his people. Let's pray.